Welcome to the Abridged Presidential Histories with Kenny Ryan, episode 24B, an interview on the lies and secrets of Grover Cleveland with Matthew Algio. I'm excited to welcome Matthew Algio to the show today. Matthew is an award-winning journalist and history author whose works include All This Marvelous Potential, Robert Kennedy's 1968 tour of Appalachia, Harry Truman's Excellent Adventure, the true story of a great American road trip, and the impressively titled The President is a Sick Man, wherein the supposedly virtuous Grover Cleveland survives a secret surgery at sea and vilifies the courageous newspaper man who dared expose the truth. An excellent title. Uh, and that will be the focus of our interview today. Matthew, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome, Kenny. It's good to be with you. Uh, so whenever Grover Cleveland has come up in my conversations with uh, other historians, the first thing out of their mouths is always his most famous quote, above all, tell the truth, which drives me a little crazy because of the story that's at the center of your book and how that story throws everything we think we know about Cleveland's honesty into doubt. So, Matthew, what was Grover Cleveland hiding in 1893? <laughs> Well, uh, he, he had built this reputation for honesty. As you mentioned, his famous quote uh, was, tell the truth. And that was actually in response to a scandal that occurred in 1884, uh, which was during his first presidential campaign. And it was revealed that he had fathered a child out of wedlock. And uh, when this news came out, he sent a telegram to his friends in Buffalo, and he told them, tell the truth. And really, uh, Cleveland's uh, honesty he admitted that uh, he was providing for this child and had fathered the child. Uh, his honesty really probably won him more votes than the original indiscretion cost him. So he really had this reputation for honesty uh, that went back to his days as a, as a lawyer and as a mayor of Buffalo. So uh, in 1892, he was elected to his second non-consecutive term. Of course, he won uh, in 84, then he ran again in 88, he lost to Benjamin Harrison, and then he won again in, in 1892. So uh, what happened early in his second term, uh, he found he had a little bump on the roof of his mouth. Uh, and he didn't give it much concern because there was a lot going on in the country at the time, the panic of 1893, which nobody really remembers, but was the second worst uh, depression in American history. Uh, had really just begun. The Reading Railroad had gone bankrupt, uh, but Wall Street was in a crisis. So finding a little bump on the roof of your mouth really wasn't a big deal to Grover. So he kind of ignored it like we all do, tend to do. Uh, but finally, it was around June that he had his uh, physician, his personal physician, Joseph Decatur Bryant, uh, look at it. Bryant was a physician in New York. And um, he, uh, he, he diagnosed it as cancer, that there was a tumor slow growing tumor on the roof of Grover Cleveland's mouth. And, uh, and the advice was to have it removed as soon as possible. Uh, Cleveland, uh, consented to the, uh, to the treatment, to the, you know, to the advice, but on the condition that the surgery be kept secret. He didn't want anybody to know that he was sick, that he was being treated specifically for cancer which at the time was pretty much considered a death sentence. You know, they wouldn't even use the word in the newspaper. It was the dread disease or the disease that no doctor dare name, that kind of thing. And so, uh, and, and Cleveland was afraid also that if Wall Street and uh, uh, the financial sector learned that he was ill, that it would make things worse for the economy, that the panic would get worse. So there are a whole host of reasons he wanted to keep this secret. But the bottom line is uh, he did. Uh, decide to do this operation on a boat 
with a team of six doctors secretly convened. And, uh, and, and they did, they said it was just a toothache. And so it's almost like Cleveland had built up all this capital on honesty, you know, all his honesty chips he had, and he sort of cashed them in on this big lie to pretend he didn't have cancer in 1893. Got it. So, so you hit a lot of things. I'm going to dive deeper into a couple of those. You said he finds out he's sick, you know, June, shortly after being sworn in. Uh, and he makes the decision to keep from, from the public. Can you elaborate more on it? Like, is it just a concern about the economy? Is is there anything beyond that, especially given just his reputation for honesty? Did he really think, like, did he really believe it would tank the economy, like it would destroy the country if people knew right. he had cancer? <laughs> right, it's sort of an egotistic, if people know I'm sick, the country right. will, yeah, will disappear. Uh, well, uh, yeah, there were, actually, there were a lot of different things going on at that time that uh, went into this decision he made to keep it secret. One was the economy. Uh, number two was the great political issue of that day was gold versus silver. We don't need to get into this. I barely <laughs> understand it. I learned it good enough to write about it in the chapter. I tried to explain it in a recent episode. So hopefully people are like a little familiar. Or, or if, they're if, like, okay. I hope you did. A, hope you did a better job than I do. But uh, to, 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 to keep it real short, Cleveland was a gold guy. He believed in the gold standard. Money should be based on gold. His vice president, Adley Stevenson, who was the grandfather of the future presidential candidate named Adley Stevenson. Uh, Stevenson was from Illinois, and he was a silver guy. And he believed in bimetallism, that is, that the currency should be based on both silver and gold. So Cleveland, basically, they put this guy, um, you know, Stevenson on the ticket to balance the ticket. Ah. So you had, you know, the gold people were sort of like the Northeast, the Eastern, you know, banking business types. Silver was the farmers and the miners. So that kind of balanced the ticket out, which is a little weird because now it would be like, you know, having a pro-life and a pro-choice, you know, ticket in or, or any other major issue like that. If you pick it, they were like on opposite sides. So Cleveland didn't want Stevenson to know he was sick. Ah. Cleveland did not want his vice president to know that he was sick. So that was another reason to keep things. Um, keep things quiet. And in fact, uh, Stevenson, when he started hearing rumors that Cleveland was not well, Stevenson was at the World's Fair in Chicago and, uh, and sent a telegram to Cleveland saying, I'm headed right back to Washington. And Cleveland tele telegrammed him back, sent a telegram back, says, actually, what I'd like you to do is go on a trip for me to Seattle. So in 1893, going to Seattle, of course, necessitated stagecoaches and trains and boats. And that, that got Stevenson out of the picture. So that was a reason number two that he wanted to keep it quiet. Uh, reason number three was I also mentioned just how cancer had this very negative uh, uh, connotation at the time. I, I say it was kind of like AIDS in the 80s. You didn't want people to know. It was a social stigma. Uh, it was also considered like a death sentence. And so Cleveland was a definitely, you know, was totally afraid of appearing weak. You know how presidents, everybody, I guess, but presidents, especially politicians don't want to appear weak. God forbid anybody be weak. So, um, so Cleveland, uh, was, was so loath to, to, to appear weak that he made the decision. Also his wife was, uh, pregnant at the time. Nobody knew this. And, uh, he just didn't want that kind of another added layer of stress of, uh, you know, 
he didn't like being the focus of attention to begin with, which is weird for a president, but, you know, sort of like Nixon. I mean, he was just sort of kind of, he didn't enjoy that part of it. And so the, the, the media attention, the newspaper attention that would come with people knowing he had this disease, Grant had died in 1885. So just eight years earlier, Grant had died of an oral cancer as well. So this played in this whole, the Grant's death was a whole spectacle. You know, the guys waited outside the, the, house, the house waiting. It was a death watch. It was just a terrible thing. So all of these reasons combined, you know, all of these elements combined for Cleveland to make the decision ultimately that I need to keep this a secret. Now, I will say if, you know, alternate history here, what if Cleveland stands up and says, hey, uh, I have cancer, um, but I'm going to be treated by the best doctors, the best medicine available under the best circumstances, we're going to do it all this you know, and in the end, spoiler alert, he survives uh, the operation. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. I don't think we're giving anything away there, but, um, you know, he would have survived and it really could have helped change people's attitudes uh, right. about cancer at the time. But again, a lot of, there were a lot of, a lot of things going on here in the very first weeks of his, his presidency, the second term that ultimately led him to make the decision he made. So who is allowed inside his circle of trust with this issue? So uh, Cleveland, uh, they eventually uh, recruited six doctors. Um, they had a dentist who was an anesthetist. Uh, uh, Bryant was his uh, was his uh, personal physician. Uh, then they had uh, um, uh, the White House physician, and then they had three assistants, basically. So that was the surgical team, and uh, the family knew, of course. Uh, uh, Francis was his, his wife, his first lady, beloved, by the way, they were married in, uh, 1886 during his first term. Francis was 21. He was 49. That's a whole story, which we go. Yeah. I've talked right. about that story too. <laughs> right. But, but, but for purposes of answering your question, it was a very, very small group of people. Dan Lamont was his secretary of war. And he also kind of acted as his, um, uh, press secretary. He was the intermediary between Cleveland and the newspaper men. So he also knew. Um, but that was about it. Uh, the attorney general, Richard Olney, um, was, uh, they were trying to get legislation passed to change the Sherman Silver Purchase Act, uh, just addressing the gold versus silver issue. And Olney had tried for, for weeks to get an appointment with Cleveland and couldn't get one. And finally, he, he got one about three or four weeks after the operation. And he could tell something dramatic had happened that Cleveland's mouth was so packed with gauze, he couldn't understand a word he said. So eventually, sort of a, a second layer got out, uh, you know, of people who f found out. But before the fact and the preparation was very small, I mean, probably 10 people knew. I just have to say, it's really kind of like poetically appropriate that you said the Secretary of War doubled as the press secretary. <laughs> it just sounds about right. Right. Uh, yeah. So doing battle on multiple fronts. Well, we didn't have a war going on. What are you right, going to do? Right. Right. Yeah. Here, fight the, right. These guys up. Um, so how do you go about, I mean, you mentioned he was diagnosed by his personal physician, but he's got to recruit these other doctors. How do you go about finding doctors when you like, are like, okay, so I got a guy who's sick. I can't tell you who it is. Exactly. What was that process like? Yeah. So there were a lot of cryptic, uh, I almost said emails, cryptic letters uh, <laughs> exchanged uh, uh, between uh, Bryant. Uh, so Joseph Decatur Bryant, who was his personal physician, was a big wig. He was a big doctor in New York. Everybody knew him. So Bryant 
he called in some favors on this. He went to Philadelphia and he recruited this guy, William Williams Keene, W.W. Keene. And he, Keene, was at Jefferson uh, Medical College in Philadelphia. He was probably the most famous surgeon in America at the time. Uh, Keene had been a Civil War, uh, had been a commissioned officer in the Civil War. He would live to 95. He was a commissioned officer in World War I as well. Um, so not a lot of guys were commissioned officers in the civil war in the first world war, uh, Keen would later treat Franklin Roosevelt. So long esteemed career. And he was probably the most famous uh, member of the surgical team. So they got Keen on board. And I think, um, you know, uh, uh, some of the, of the doctors were actually just assistants, you know, kind of the, the protégés of these big famous guys. Uh, and then with Keen and Bryant on board, they were able to recruit a couple more guys. Uh, one was Hasbrook, the dentist. Um, and, and, and really, I think they appealed to their patriotism. And Keen would later write that, you know, he was a Republican and uh, Cleveland, of course, was a Democrat. But, uh, you know, Keen, the office of the presidency was what was what mattered here and, uh, and that he was kind of doing his American duty. It, it, it's weird, though, because you really have a situation where and you see this a lot with presidents where the president, the patient is dictating the terms of the treatment, you know, sort of like they were out of their minds, <laughs> do this operation on a boat right. and have a, like have a, remove a tumor from your mouth on a boat. And, uh, but Cleveland insisted he had this friend Benedict who had a yacht and Cleveland always went fishing on the yacht. So this would well, be a Cleveland's very good idea. Cleveland's guy right. said, you know what? Surgery on a boat. I think that's he, the way to go. <laughs> Right. And they're all like, well, that is a very good idea, Mr. President. How clever. So just by agreeing to do this on yeah. the boat just shows how crazy it was that the, you know, again, the, the patient, the president is dictating kind of the terms of the, of the, of the treatment. Um, but they all agreed to do it. And they all agreed to keep it secret. And mm. that's, a, that's what happened. So without going into too much gory detail, mm -hmm. the details I have read of the surgery are nuts. We, we've talked about like it's on a boat. It's something like he's tied to a chair to the mast pole underneath. Can you can you give me the details of? Right, right. So uh, the surgery was July 1st, 1893. Mm -hmm. uh, Cleveland, uh, that uh, the day before, called Congress uh, into a special session that would convene on August uh First, might be August 7th, anyway, a month later. So that bought Cleveland time to get out of DC. He was going up to uh, Gray Gables, his home on Cape Cod in Massachusetts. And again, this wasn't unusual. And it, it wasn't unusual for the president to leave Washington for a month in the, in the 1890s. I mean, it was everybody left Washington if they could. Uh, it's a miserable place. <laughs> and uh, so it wasn't, it was, it was a good cover story. It really was a good cover story. So Cleveland takes the train up to New York He gets on the boat the night before uh, the doctors are all secretly ferried in from different piers uh, the night before as well. The next morning gets up uh, operation begins, I think around noon. Uh, they uh, you're, you're right. They had him in a chair. They had a, they called it a saloon, just sort of like the, you know, the club room under the deck. Uh, below deck on the boat and they had the mast the pole of the mast in the middle of the room and so they tied the chair to that put some pillows under his neck they used a combination of uh, ether and and nitrous or laughing gas as as uh, as the anesthesia keen was very the, the doctor the the surgeon for philadelphia keen was very much um uh, sort of a cutting edge he 
he believed in Lister's germ theory. So in that case, anyway, um, he was in good hands. Cleveland was, you know, yeah, uh, Arthur Garfield. Yeah, Garf, Garfield had been assassinated and they're sticking their fingers in the hole. Like, where's the bullet? So none of this, everybody's washing their hands at least. <laughs> and the operation itself was about 90 minutes. They took out two of uh, um, uh, uh, five teeth, uh, upper left palate. We're talking five teeth, about a third of the upper left palate uh, and a piece of the jawbone as well. So this was all removed to remove the mass uh, that they had found uh, on the on the roof of his mouth. Uh, today, uh, the operation, I talked to a couple of doctors, the operation would take several hours, but obviously they wanted to work as fast as they could. It's interesting to think the things they didn't have, you know, they didn't have suction. They had no, no means of draining the area. Um, they barely had an electric light. Um, they had a light bulb that they used. Um, uh, no blood transfusion at the time either. So any of the blood that Cleveland lost, you know, they couldn't replace. So uh, it was a very risky operation at the time, um, but they did it in 90 minutes. They removed all that stuff and they packed that wound with gauze. They said in circles, they just sort of stayed at, at, they were on Long Island Sound for about four or five days. It wasn't until July 5th, four days later, uh, the, uh, the night of the 5th that they finally docked at Gray Gables in, in uh, Massachusetts, born Massachusetts, where Cleveland's summer home was. Of course, it was late at night, so all the reporters who you know, went up there were you know, back at the hotel, hotel drinking, so they didn't see him when they probably had to you know, carry him into the house. But that's how they did it. It was all done in secret. Okay, on a scale of 0 to 10, how dumb was this plan? We'll say 10 is the dumbest. <laughs> Yeah, it the the fact that uh, I guess you have to deduct. You would say ten, but it worked. <laughs> <All right>. so, <laughs> uh, we'll take it down to nine. Um, it was crazy. It was yeah. really, really crazy, and uh, it was one of the cool things about the um, researching the book. And because I don't, I mean, I majored in folklore. I don't know anything about medicine, but. <laughs> I got to talk talk to doctors and, uh, you know, I interviewed the guy who's the head of basically like Keene, Dr. Keene's position that he had in 1893 at Jefferson Medical College. I talked to that guy, his counterpart today, uh, who also uh, happens to be, he, he's an oncologist. Um, and he was just a uh, staggered by the fact that they did this on a boat. Uh <laughs> But B, also very, very impressed that they, they did it successfully. Um, so, you know, there's, there's, uh, there was some ego involved in it too, I think. You know, they're like, I think we can do this. It's so crazy. It just might work kind of thing. Yeah, just um, me. this is like a heist movie where you're stealing like the upper left palate of the president's job. Right. <laughs> right. He did. Uh, apparently, he, he had, there were a couple fillings in the teeth, but they were gold. Uh, as, as Cleveland liked to point out, but, uh, but yeah, and, and it was kind of a heist in a way. One of the doctors actually saved the tumor <laughs> and kept it in a jar. And the tumor is actually on display to this day at the, uh, Mooner museum in Philadelphia, which is like a, a medical. Visits, are there a lot of people who are like, let me see the Cleveland tumor. <laughs> this is a great museum. They yeah. have, they have, uh, uh, chief justice, John Marshall's bladder stones. Um, <laughs> They've got like the best collection of things removed from famous politicians, but they, they kept, I mean, again, which goes to show you how they considered this kind of a, 
yeah. in, you know, a, 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 a remarkable achievement in their career, but yeah. they couldn't yeah. tell anybody about it. So, so it was kind of, there was ego involved as well. Okay. So, so the doctors, they remove like the five teeth, they remove this chunk of his jaw. Uh, I, I know there's no like social media yet, but how do you hide that from the public? <laughs> Uh, they did a couple of things. Well, one thing they had the advantage back then that the president would could disappear for a month. Yeah, they they had at Cleveland's summer White House, which before we use the term, but his summer home. Yeah, uh, there was a there was a there was a barn about a hundred yards up the road, and that's where Lamont, the Secretary of War slash press secretary, kind of set up a press room. And so the reporters would hang out there all day, but it was far enough away. And it reminds me of um, uh, Reagan would, um, mm-hmm. it's, when he sometimes with the helicopter, he'd be walking across the White House when he was going to the helicopter and the reporters would shout questions. And Reagan would be like, I can't hear you because of the helicopter or don't know what to do. It's sort of like that where they would take, so Cleveland would go out fishing and they could see and they'd be, oh, we got to get in our boats, got to get in our boats but they would never get close enough to actually see or talk to him. You know, they could shout questions to him, but you know, Lamont would say the president's enjoying the fishing, you know? (laughs) So they, they were able to do this for several weeks. And during the course of that time, the wound inside Cleveland's mouth healed well enough that he could be fitted with a prosthetic uh, prosthetic device, a piece of basically vulcanized rubber, like hockey puck that was (laughs) shaped to the, to the, form to the shape of the, the the cavity that was left in his mouth and in time that healed well enough and he could pop this into place and it would take the place of all the stuff that was taken out and it, res- it returned his speaking voice he could speak perfectly fine the shape of his face everything and so that is what made it complete in the end i mean i guess the the real hero of the story as far as grover's concerned is this uh uh I know I always forget the word posto, pro, pro, prostodontist. I think it is Cassin Gibson. A, a, he was a dentist who fashioned these prosthetic devices for people who had lost parts of their, their mouth to, to oral oh, so cancer. It's very common. A trust. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, and in fact, one of the very few letters uh, we have Cleveland ha- having written uh, was a thank you letter to this Dr. Gibson, thanking him for the excellent device that that he had made. Because as the years went by, the the defect would actually shrink in his mouth; it would get smaller and smaller. It healed and healed, so he'd periodically have to get a new uh, prosthetic piece to put up in there. But really, once he had that in place, and he kind of mastered that, we're talking, you know, end of July into early August. Um, the uh, you know, it, it was impossible to know. They ever, all the surgery was done inside the mouth. Everything was inside the mouth. His famous mustache was not touched. There was no external scar. Nobody could tell. So just by appearance, there would be no way to know he'd had the operation. All is so incredible. Okay. So somehow a journalist does find out and he starts reporting on the surgery. Uh, when does that happen? And how, who is this person? How do they find out? Right. So uh, Elijah Edwards, E.J. Edwards, was a reporter for the Philadelphia Press, and he was their New York correspondent. Um, and he he lived in Greenwich. And what happened was one of the one of the doctors, the dentist, Hasbrook, who had assisted with the surgery, he had an appointment the next day with a, a, a the day after the surgery with another doctor for another. To, he was also Hasbrook was also good with anesthesia. So 
he was much in demand in New York. And so he had an appointment the next day, but he missed it because after the Cleveland operation, he had been told, we'll let you, we'll let you disembark the, the boat in Greenwich. But then they were a little afraid. Well, what if we need to do a little follow-up here? Let's keep the guy who knows anesthesia on the boat. So Hasbrook missed this appointment with this guy. Carlos McDonald was his name. And uh, the next day, they had to cancel the operation that he was supposed to assist with. And when he finally got in touch with McDonald, he said, well, I have a good excuse because I was helping with an operation on Grover Cleveland. And then, of course, apparently doctors cannot keep a secret because every doctor in Greenwich in New York knew this by the end of the week. One of the doctors was named Leander Jones. He was a friend of E.J. Edwards, a neighbor of his in Greenwich. And he said, to Edwards, well, I guess you heard about what happened to Grover Cleveland. And Edwards was like, what? <laughs> so, yeah, like everybody's talking about, he had cancer of the mouth and they did this operation. So Edwards then went to Hasbrook, the original source, and Hasbrook confirmed what Edwards had heard. Edwards published the report on August 28th under the headline, The President, a Sick Man in the Philadelphia Press. And uh, it was really kind of an, it was, it was, it was an explosive report. I mean, saying the president has cancer. Not only that, he has oral cancer, the kind that, yeah, that um, yeah, the kind that Grant had. Uh, so super like big news. Although back then they were still doing just like eight columns on the front page, no banner headlines. So it's, you know, right, right up there with the ads for underwear and stuff. But uh, Edwards puts us in the, in the press. And the Cleveland administration reaction was exactly the opposite of tell the truth this time. Uh, the, the response that was coordinated by, well, ultimately Cleveland, but also Dan Lamont, who was the kind of press secretary, was to deny everything and blame it all on a bad case of dentistry, that he had need to have some dental work done. That's all it was. And the story was that, you know, he was on the boat and he, he had two teeth removed, which was true. I just didn't mention, you know, the rest of the palate and, you know, the other three teeth. And the, so, <laughs> so they really that that was the cover story. They denied, denied, denied the, the, the media at the time, the newspapers were pretty viciously partisan. It's a lot like today, you know, you, you read the, if you were a Republican, you read the Philadelphia press because you wanted to hear what you wanted to hear. If you were a Democrat, you read the Philadelphia times and so the Philadelphia Times was virulently uh, anti-Edwards. Uh, uh, it was a newspaper war at the time, too. So they, mm. they, they called him a cancer faker, a liar, a disgrace to journalism, that this had all been made up, that the, Edwards was lying. And really, you know, I guess the American people, A, had a lot of other things to worry about because the economy was so bad. And then a big hurricane hit. And so it kind of really that it the story just kind of disappeared off the front pages. Once Cleveland said he was fine, then uh, I think I had mentioned that Frances was pregnant. She has the baby in September, which is almost perfect timing because, like, just after Edward's story comes out that you know Cleveland's a dying man, and is what well, I mean, he's making babies. How can he yeah. be a dying man? You know, yeah. there's these vigor, you know, he's virile. So it, the timing of it worked out perfectly for Cleveland that it didn't take much lying to convince people that he was okay by then he was you know he could talk he was back on his feet why still lie though then it's like now you you could at this point say yes i had cancer and i'm better and it's removed why still yeah, lie? yeah. i mean in a way i think it's too bad he didn't i think they had just gone they'd gotten in that the lie had gone for so long by then mm. you know we're at six to eight weeks that to go back and say oh okay well all that 
was BS when we told you we were just out fishing for four days. I think once they had made the decision that they were going to go with the story that he had just had some, some dental work done on the boat, there was no way to, you know, what's the, what, you know, what's the saying? It's not the, it's not the crime. It's the cover up that always gets you in trouble, you know? So they had just, they had that now it wasn't about the, you know, the crime, it wasn't a crime, but it was about the cover up and keeping that going. And and that was just the decision that they made. So it was just a sense of we're all in, we're all in. <laughs> right. Right. It's, it's done. Yeah. It's done, baby. So, so what becomes of this journalist? The administration goes after him hard. He's called cancer faker, all these things. What happens to him? Um, you know, it, I don't want to say his career was ruined because, again, the, the media was very partisan at the time. Edwards had a reputation for honesty that would would um, um, that would prevail in the end. And in fact, it was 1894 a year or two later, he uh, he did a big story that exposed congressional corruption involving the sugar trust. The Domino sugar people were paying congressmen to basically help them keep their monopoly. Um, but Edwards had always hung over his career that he was the guy who said that Cleveland had cancer and had this funny story about there was an operation on a boat. So I think it was something that really did hang over his career for the rest of his career. And it wasn't until, I don't know if you want to go there now, but it was in, in 1917, Cleveland was long dead that Keene, uh, W.W. Keene, the, one of the doctors finally, apparently, <laughs> yes, it was like who had some secret. Yeah. The, the the, the secret to permanent existence. Um, he, he published in the uh, Saturday Evening Post of all places, a full account of this operation. He did that in large part to vindicate E.J. Edwards, the reporter who had been vilified uh, when he told the truth in 1893, seven plus 17, 24 years later. So 24 years after the fact, finally, the truth came out and Keene published uh, this report about the operation in the Saturday evening post of all places, not the, you know, journal of the American medical <laughs> association. Was Edward still alive to feel? Yes, it? he was. Edwards was still alive. Uh, uh, they were both very old men at that time. <laughs> um, and, uh, and Ed- Ed- Edwards Keene, when he decided to write the article began corresponding with Edwards. And so we, we have some correspondence uh, between Keene and Edwards and Edwards was very grateful to Keene for finally vindicating him. Uh, by publishing this article. It's too bad. Keene saved everything. I mean, he saved the tumor. Right. Um, but like, so that was one of the things when I, I saw the tumor in the nineties at this, at the Mütter museum and got me interested in the story. And then I found out they, they have also the Keen Keen's papers there. So even though it was secret, you saw all his, you know, he wrote his unpublished memoirs and correspondence. So there was a lot of stuff. Edwards, unfortunately, his house burned down. There was a big fire in Greenwich, like 1908 or so. And so all his papers were lost of like his career. So even getting biographical information about Edwards was kind of, kind of difficult. I had to kind of reconstruct that all from, you know, from secondary sources, but yes, Edwards was still alive in 1917. Keene was still alive. Um, uh, One of the doctors I think lived until the 1950s. It was, uh, Erdman was his name and he was one of the assistants. He was like the, you know, he was basically just out of medical school at the time, but was Dr. Bryant's right-hand man. Yeah. Uh, so he, he, he lived a long time as well. That's such a wild story. Um, taking us back to the start of the episode where, where we talked about it briefly, how Cleveland's most famous quote is this above all 
tell the truth. And it's something that came from the Maria Halpin scandal where right. uh, he was accused of raping this woman. He was accused of tricking her into abandoning a child, locking her in asylum. Like it was all pretty bad stuff. And when the accusations came out, he reportedly said, above all, tell the truth. And he admitted to the confair, but he claimed it was consensual. He said the baby was taken for the baby's safety and Maria was taken to asylum for her help. It kind of feels like there's a rhyme between this and saying like, okay, sure. Yeah, I had oral surgery, just a couple teeth removed, but not everything you say. So knowing about Cleveland secret surgery a decade later, does that color what you think of the Halpin affair? Does it make you question anything else about Hammer's presidency? Uh, I think it it does a little bit. I think actually just since I wrote the book in the, in the, the book came out in, Oh, uh, right. In 11, I guess, 10 years, Mm -hmm. uh, 10 years ago. um, I think there's been a slow reassessment of, of the Halpin affair. Um, I think Cleveland was taken at his word at the time for the basics of the story. And now uh, the idea that he may have coerced her or even raped her um, and that his handling of the situation when the child was born was, you know, not entirely, um, you know, copacetic. Um, So, yeah, I I think I think it's worth thinking about that, you know, in light of what we know he did do uh, in 1893 by covering up the operation. You know, it, it certainly justifies re-examining the Halpin affair in, in that light. Um, it's just going to be impossible to know exactly what happened, you know, with the, with the Maria Halpin affair. And I don't think the, you know, the, the child then that was a boy, uh, there are all kinds of stories about, you know, he grew up to be this or that apparently famous or a fairly successful, uh, doctor in Western Washington state. Um, but for one thing, the paternity itself was always kind of uh, in question because the child was named uh, <laughs> right, Oscar Folsom, Oscar Folsom <laughs> Cleveland. Oscar Folsom was Cleveland's law partner, but then Cleveland was the last name. So what was it Folsom? And then Cleveland was just sort of taking one for the team because he was a bachelor at the time. Yeah. So Oscar we don't Folsom, know that. The father of his bride. <laughs> right, right. Who was the father here. of Francis. <laughs> and, and you know, I guess if we, uh, you know, had sufficient time and money, we could probably do some dna testing and oh, that's, figure that's out i want that that's yeah dna test let's figure that one out yeah let's let's do a, a gofundme for that we can compare um, it to the tumor we know where it is exactly well but actually you could compare it um i'm facebook friends with george cleveland who's grover's grandson oh wow kind of crazy because but grover i think grover was born in, i know grover was born in 18 well no 1837 1839. But anyway, Grover was 60 yeah. and had a son. Yeah. He had and then the son, kid. the son was 60 and had a son. So like George Cleveland's Grover's grandson was born like 1959 or something. You know, I, I hope he hangs out with like, uh, you know, John Tyler's son. Right. Uh, is still alive. What, or grandson They've actually <laughs> st- just started a presidential descendants uh, association. Oh yeah. Um, because I'm also a, uh, uh, Facebook friends with Clifton Truman Daniel, who's Harry's grandson. Cool. So they, these guys all do hang out. <laughs> secretly running the world, I guess. I don't know what they're doing, but right. um, but yeah, but that we you could probably figure out exactly the paternity at least of the of the the child in question. 
All right. I got a couple last questions for you. Uh, one is that, you know, Grover Cleveland, he's not the last president who's going to hide his health from the world. What's the legacy that he leaves with this episode? Uh, you can get away with it. I mean, he was, <laughs> by the time anybody found out, he was dead and buried. So in a way, it was a fantastically successful cover up. And, you know, you go back, there's all, you know, uh, you know, Lincoln had a form of smallpox and, you know, Washington had had a tumor removed from his leg. Um, So there's all kinds of stories of presidents. And then you get up into the, you know, the, you know, the great uh, um, Woodrow Wilson deception. He basically had a stroke that completely incapacitated him last 16 months, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, you, you know, I think presidents are always going to be super reluctant to reveal too much about their health, especially if it's not great news. And uh, Cleveland sort of really set, well, I guess the gold standard uh, for that, for that kind of, uh, for that kind of cover up. And I I think it was something that really persisted really not until the fifties, you see, um, you know, Eisenhower was fairly open about his, his problems. He had a heart attack, had a mild stroke, uh, Kennedy, though, of course, he was not quite as open. Uh, so even to this day, you know, I think, uh, you know, Donald Trump, still not 100% sure what he went to the hospital for that time. Right. Um, yeah. So it's really kind of the intersection of, of you know, politics and, and, and medicine. Um, you know, politically, it's not always in your best interest to tell everybody everything that's going on. Yeah. You know, one thing that just clicked in my mind is the dates of, you mentioned, I think it was 1917 that the story finally comes out. And it's not too long after that Wilson has that stroke. And, you know, I, you have to wonder if Edith Wilson was, had read that article and was like, oh, oh yeah. You know? Yeah. I'm sure she did. Yeah. You know, there wasn't, there was an article about a president in the Saturday Evening Post. <laughs> she was reading it. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. Um, Last question I got for you. What lessons in leadership do you think we can learn from Cleveland in, in this episode? Is there something to be learned there or something to like a, a bad lesson or a good lesson? What's the lesson? Yeah. Uh, I think in general, Cleveland, I mean, I, I, I like him. I don't think I, I don't really agree with his politics, but even in this instance, when it probably wasn't a good thing, he, 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 stuck to his principles and what he believed in, you know, I think he believed in his heart of hearts that it was probably for the best. If it was not general knowledge that he had cancer and that he had undergone this operation, I think it was also, you know, what he wanted. Um, It wasn't, I don't think it was going against what he wanted, but it was, I think what he believed was the right thing to do. Uh, You know, I mentioned that hurricane then that came and hit in, um, uh, late August, early September of 1893, it devastated the Carolina coast, and and uh, the uh, uh, the congressmen and the and the governors uh, appealed for help from the federal government. And Cleveland said uh, um, he did not want to. I forget something like foster in the people a paternalistic uh, attitude toward government. So he basically said no. Yeah, I think they yeah. sent some cots down. Uh, he said in one of his inaugurals that the you know the people should cheerfully support the government, but the government should not support the people. Right. You know, the, conservatives. The Cleveland quote that always comes to my mind. Right. <laughs> yeah. 
So when people who talk about like small C conservatives love Grover Cleveland, he vetoed more bills than any other president oh, except yeah. FDR. Yeah. So, so you know, and and by by saying that in in the in the aftermath of that hurricane, it was not didn't win him any political points. I mean, by the time Cleveland left office in 1897, he was deeply unpopular. Uh, so, but he that was what his principles were, and that was what he believed in. So. I guess the lesson is, you know, stick by your principles, but be prepared to either lie or make a wrong decision. <laughs> yeah, live you know? by your principles, die by your principles. Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, he was, uh, he was, he was not popular yeah. when he left office, and it, it's interesting too. He's really the last of those. You know, McKinley comes in, but mm. then McKinley, with Spanish American War, really starts to get America involved in international affairs. Then Teddy Roosevelt comes in and totally changes the way presidents are. So you, Cleveland's kind of the last of those, you know, 19th century post-Civil War presidents that kind of saw their job as making sure Congress didn't screw up too much. If you'd like to hear more from Matthew, please check out his books, including The President is a Sick Man, wherein the supposedly virtuous Grover Cleveland survives a secret surgery at sea and vilifies the courageous newspaper man who dared expose... It was supposed to be a clever thing, having that long subtitle like those you know, 19th century it. Victorian era books. But now I'm like, oh, every time, you know, it's... I, I, like, I, I, like, I haven't put together the acronym yet, but I, later I'm going <laughs> right, to put together that. Right. We'll hashtag it. Yeah. Um, you can also check him out on the web at malgeo.net. That's M-A-L-G-E-O.net. And you can give him a follow on Twitter at malgeo. Uh, thank you for your time, Matthew. You're welcome, Kenny. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Abridged Presidential Histories. If you enjoyed it, Please subscribe, tell your friends about the show, and leave a five-star review on your podcast listening platform of choice. It's always good to hear from y'all. You can also follow the show on Facebook at Abridged Presidential Histories or on Twitter at APH Podcast. If you would like to support the show, you can look it up on Patreon or go directly to www.patreon.com slash Abridged Presidential Histories. This helps me buy books and pay to host the show. And thank you so much to everyone who's contributed so far. The music in today's podcast is a public domain recording of the United States Army Old Guard Fife and Drum Corps. In our next episode, we're going to look at President William McKinley, the man who is going to really kick modern campaigning up a notch with some reforms that start to make elections look more like today in the sense that we're going to spend a ton of money and the corporations are going to pay for all of it. So come for that story next time on Abridged Presidential Histories. <laughs>